Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello, my name is Michael, you can call me M, and I was just thinking, man, that is the smoothest introduction ever, but um, I just realised I fluffed the introduction, but I'll edit that out, and um, none of you listeners will be the wiser. The power is great. Welcome to my podcast. I have with me Kate who has recently ventured into the mental health field. So that's what particularly attracted my attention towards interviewing her. I like to share the pain and we we do have a lot to talk about in regards to what we both have in terms of professional experience. She likes to bring social workers together. And that was how I first met Kate through one of her groups. And perhaps Kate might want to talk a bit more about that as well. Let's see how we go. So hi, Kate. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me on and inviting me. And to start, I also wanted to acknowledge the Aboriginal people of this land and any listeners and acknowledge Elders past, present and future. Thank you very much, Kate. No worries. I, um, I've got you here at University of New South Wales and I feel like I, I've led you down something of a rabbit hole because it's, it's a weekend and there's some places around here that are open, some that are not so. I feel like we're technically supposed to be here. I say technically because my student card, which is still active, I finished my studies, but my card is still active and it allowed me to bring myself into a, a faculty room where we've set up and we're recording now. So... Let's just see how much more we can go before we get a tap on the shoulder by the security guard. But so far, I think this has probably been the sweetest deal I've ever had for a podcast episode. (laughs) You have found a very convenient place. Um, In terms of how I think I was quite lucky, I found a job quite quickly out of uni um, and I landed myself in mental health and I've been there for about six months now, I think. Um, Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Lots to learn. It's a very different framework that I'm working from. I'm trying to bring my social work identity and also learn about other disciplines because I work in a multidisciplinary team. Okay. So you feel like you've been able to bring your, your social work qualifications into it. With this position, do you feel like it's a social work type role or it's a little bit different? There might be some similarities. What, what do you think? You work with mental health clients, yes? Yes. So I work in adult mental health at a community health centre. I help coordinate their care plans and refer them to services Um book them in to see the psychiatrist if they require medications. And in terms of whether it is a social work role, yes, there's scope for that. But we do have 
like I said, a multidisciplinary team and we have a lot of people like nurses and occupational therapists that are doing the same role as me. It's not specifically titled as a social work role. It was advertised as a mental health clinician or mental health professional. Um, would some of the duties that you do in your role involve case management? Yes. But you're not called a case manager? Um, that's the interesting thing. We have many names. It's funny because there is an overlap where when I call other services, I will say I'm a social worker, but I by title a mental health care coordinator or mental health clinician or mental health professional. Okay, that's quite a few aliases you go by. Yeah, it is. To add some extra pressure there, Kate, are you still on probation? <laughs> on probation? Yeah. Actually, let me think about that. No, I don't think I am. I think I've just passed it. So okay. that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah, so you don't have to remember stuff anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The pressure's off. Exactly. But, um, yeah, our main role is to work with people within the community who might have um, a mental illness or issues with their mental health and make sure that we can manage that and their care in the community. So it's kind of we manage that so they don't have to go to hospital. I think it's a better way to manage people and their mental health. I think it it is a a response that has happened, I'd say, over a 22, I think it's closer to a 30-year period now, where before then it was that idea that if a person presented with a mental illness, then it's that idea of keeping one out of sight and out of mind. Mm. I think since then the times have changed where it is about supporting one's right to remain within the community and, and getting there. And there's also uh, another term that's bandied about within the field, uh, and that's taking a recovery standpoint. Yes. Um, Have you heard that one in your Uh, role? Of course I have. (laughs) Yes, um, that's actually one of the selection criterias, recovery-orientated approach. Yep. What did you say in your interview? Um, I said in terms of recovery-orientated approach, I kind of – spoke about from my training that it was very you come from a point of a trauma-informed strengths-based human rights approach use skills like empathy and compassion when working with people and you're working with the person you're not telling the person what to do that was my answer when I had my interview yeah great that's why you're hired Yes, I'd like to think so. I hope so. Well, I got the job. So, yeah, anyone that, you know, is going into mental health, that's a a good tip. You can say it's a combination, the recovery approach is a combination of trauma-informed, strength-based and human rights. Yeah, 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 that's the the triple threat right there. As I mentioned before, I think it is quite important that that you're definitely working at the level with the client rather than prescribing or being an authority. I think also if you might have presented yourself as well as a bit of an expert, I don't think that would have got you very far in the interview as well. Yeah, definitely not. You know, we're taught at uni as social workers and I'm sure other disciplines, we're not the expert. The expert is the person who's experiencing. I've spent most of my time working with social housing communities. Right. Um, That's my current role doing the community work and social housing estates. Oh, fantastic. But I still retain some connection with you guys, particularly with the social housing residents that do present with mental health mm-hmm. and how it might impact upon maintaining a tenancy. Do you find that there might be more than one issue going on and at the same time it's all connected with your clients? 
in terms of maybe their mental health issues or their mental illness or their psychosocial well-being. So there's a few issues going on. Well, let me give you an example. I've got one particular client right now. He's a social housing resident and his tenancy was at risk because he didn't really keep his house in the tidiest state. Uh, quite squalid, actually. So we catch the referral and then after working with him, you find out that uh, he's an NDIS client, mm. that while he's an NDIS client, his services haven't necessarily been coordinated because with NDIS, it's all about this idea of the client being able to figure it all out, which in retrospect would present an obstacle if you don't necessarily have the capacity for the decision making, right? And this client was definitely one of those where while he immediately presented as a guy that was pretty clued in with good life decisions, once you dug a little bit deeper, i.e. you visit the house, you find out it's not so apparent. So there was a lot of advocacy there with NDIS to get his care plan reviews, having a chat with the, the mental health service cohort that he was also hooked into. Fortunately, he was very much connected within the system already, but he was falling in a gap in the sense that no one was really able to give him a closer eye it was that okay well he seems like he can count to 10 and he can pay his bills and he knows where the bus stops are so he's cool so that's what I kind of find that the more that you work with a client the more that you see there's a culmination of issues and then you try and work how it all links together and to me that seems to be like a a holistic approach definitely Um, did you use holistic in your interview I did did use holistic in very good very good <laughs> um but no you're right in terms of when i'm working with clients there are other issues going on so it's not just working with mental health issues or mental illness and you know it's working on their social well-being so are they connected do they have support networks are they connected to the right services is there drug and alcohol use and if so is it an issue do they need to be linked in with those types of services have they just been released from prison if so do we have a documentation from the correctional center so we actually know what if they're linked in with NDIS and if they were medicated and what medications they had are they in temporary accommodation so a lot of people obviously released from prison lot of them are in temporary accommodation and then become homeless and that's that whole cycle of recidivism and homelessness there's other issues like like you said even squalor in homes I mean that's a whole other discussion in itself the idea that people in social housing have to have neat homes because you know the government can monitor that kind of stuff where you wouldn't be asking people who had private rentals that surveil that kind of stuff but anyway that's a different discussion good point though yeah (laughs) there's many different issues that people have uh international students coming in who might have legal issues or psychological issues and unfortunately a lot of people that don't if they don't fall under the reciprocal agreement or they don't have Medicare, it's quite difficult to link them in with services. There's not too many. Yeah, there's a... But back to the question, there are many different underlying issues that impact people's mental health, but also it's like a cycle. The mental health might exacerbate particular aspects of their life in a negative way or a positive way, 
but also those macro and meso, so environmental, community, legislation, like I'm talking about structures, really impact people and that's what social work in particular is looking at. So it's not just simply someone comes into our service and we go, you see the psychiatrist and then you get medicated and off you trot. There's, it's a bit more holistic than that. and You could do that, you know, when no one's looking. Yeah, you could. But I, I would not feel personally and professionally, I don't think social work is to look at those, you know, macro, meso, micro. It's the ecosystem that we're looking at. It's, but I think you can't just have someone come in and be medicated. That's a Band-Aid fix. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's where the system can particularly tend itself towards that very quick fix. And the other thing I've noticed how the services can be generally arranged is that we tend to find the clients when they're really at crisis point. Perhaps that's where the the system's advocacy stuff would kick in and then you start talking about services and a systemic approach which is preventative rather than one that's crisis responsive. Yes. But... I think the scope for that, particularly with the hazard that you just mentioned there, Kate, with that idea that there is that temptation just to treat a patient by virtue of that simple thing where if they present a symptom, then it can be treated with the medication. Yeah, the other thing I was having a bit of a think about there was, um, it sounds to me, Kate, that you come into this role because you want to work with clients, right? You want to work closely with them, you want to work out what their needs are and you want to respond. That's right. You're doing that, but at the same time, what are your thoughts on navigating different services, structures, trying to understand that yourself, let alone helping the client understand that? Yeah, good question. There's a lot to learn. You've passed probation, so I'm giving you a very difficult (laughs) question now. Well, it's kind of you go out and you kind of self-learn. You contact agencies, you contact services. Hey, what do you offer? Does it cost? What do the client, what's the eligibility criteria basically? And it's a matter of sometimes Googling because these types of, I'm thinking in terms of services like housing and NDIS or even, for example, the New South Wales Spectacle Program which I didn't even know about, I Googled. And basically it allows people who um, have Centrelink payments, like they only live off Centrelink payments, they don't have assets, um, single people more than $500, let's say. And there's a few other selection criteria, but it enables people to have one pair of glasses a year. So, and that was just by Googling. And then you contact the optometrist and they book the client in and it's all free yeah that was just a matter of googling sometimes it's word of mouth with colleagues they'll tell you what services are available but most of the time I'll just go on even HSnet so human services network and ask izzy.org.au oh yeah Ask Izzy, yeah, and it's I double Z Y, not I double S Y, but um, <laughs> and they have a list of services and they kind of give a summary of what they do. So is that like a more of a, a service version of Ask Jeeves, or am I really showing <laughs> yes. my age now? No, I remember Ask Jeeves as well, but yeah, it is. 
It is. So oh. Ask Izzy and HSNet, they're really, really great in okay. terms of telling you what services are available. But also Google Maps, just social supports in your area and comes up with community centres and that's another great way to get um, ideas, contacting community centres. They know of services in the local area. Yeah. Uh, have you ever felt, though, that sometimes you've been you've been placed on a wild goose chase where you think that you've been given a hot tip and then you try to pursue that and it's like, wow, the person who really told me that is full of shit. <laughs> ever been in that situation, Kate? Yes, yes. Are you prepared to name names? I Well, I can't think of, like, a specific example because it has happened quite a few times. So. Yeah. Yeah, you, you kind of get numb to it as well, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's good to know. <laughs> but yeah, I think the best way to learn about services is use the knowledge within the room of your colleagues. They already know services, talk to your managers, contact services, contact agencies like let's say Department of Housing and then they can, they'll have a list of transitional accommodation or temporary accommodation, for example, Yeah. That's that's one thing that um, I feel that we've kind of suffered as, as as being the workers that we always tend to be pushed into trying to do everything solely and individually, mm. and a lot of the stuff that we tend to find out is often accidental, isn't it? It is. It is like you might walk past like this happened to me actually the other day, and actually answers the other part of your question of how do you explain it to people you're working with. I had to try and explain this new carers program and the carers gateway and I was struggling to understand it and basically I had to write out what I was going to say to my client about this is what the carers gateway is, this is how you become a part of it and I had to kind of rehearse it a little just before I saw them but I do often pass around information I found to my colleagues in an email Sure. The other thing I'm a particularly big fan of is that idea of peer support. Do you get yes. a bit of that in your place? Yes, we have a peer support workers little group. Yeah, they're employed where I work and I often suggest to clients, you know, it's a good way to talk to someone that has lived experience of maybe suicide or psychosis and it's a place where they can feel safe and also empowered. And I think peer support workers are very important. Yeah, that's one unique aspect of the mental health field, that uh, emerging peer support, peer worker movement. Mm. I think I've heard it referred to as that yeah. before. Yeah, and I think they're such a valuable resource and tool. They can definitely help you build rapport with clients. And they can get totally different insights and information from a client that can be really useful to a clinician when you're working with someone who might be suicidal or experiencing early signs of psychosis and they don't feel comfortable to talk to me. Sometimes, it, yeah, the peer worker can be fantastic. At yeah, being a bit more accessible, friendly. Yeah. And plus they've been there as well. So and, and it's not about that idea of really getting lost in that systemic technocratic stuff bureaucratic stuff that's it and I think with peer workers in where I work in mental health <laughs> mental health is very sometimes medicalized and you know often the psychiatrist and the doctors and whatnot are seen as the experts 
And I think the peer workers kind of, and social workers, that's the point of social work as well, challenging those structures that might be, you know, they hold a lot of power and you want to challenge that and bring a different perspective into the room and having a peer worker, they're able to open up that conversation because they are seen as, you know, they're employed there, they hold a position of power too so they can challenge those structures rather than an you know an inpatient or someone in the community their voice needs to be heard too and peer workers can act as like an advocate for that but often um, if the peer worker wasn't there those you know inpatients and things and people in the community living with mental illness their voices aren't always heard or taken seriously they're my thoughts anyway (laughs) no they're very spot-on thoughts the, the peer support workers that you've come across, you're mentioning that there is a, very much some advocacy-related behaviour that can go on with peer support workers. Mm-hmm. Have you found your, your regular peer support worker testing the boundaries? Yes. So often a peer support worker will go into trainings, like maybe strength-based training or trainings where they are trying to challenge. I'm trying to think what... I'm trying to remember a particular training. The, the fuck the shit up training? <laughs> yes. It was a training for, I think it was a training about scheduling people. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. And for those people that don't know, scheduling is, you know, part of the Mental Health Act where someone who is trained can schedule someone. They can make someone go to hospital and have an admission if they're concerned about their safety and harm to self or others basically yep. it's a it's a legal override of consent that's how that's i understand right. it yeah that's that's so eloquent and correct but um in terms of this training there are peer workers that attend workshops and training to make sure that patients future patients even though i hate that word patient i'm going to use it in this context do you call sorry if I'm going to break your train of thought again but That's do you okay. call them patients because there's so many terms these days they can be clients they can be consumers they can be customers Yes I don't really like consumers customers or patient I use client but even that is starting to I'm trying to use community members Yeah do, or do people you, do you kind of get nudged a bit to call them a certain word Yeah consumer ah but yeah. I refuse refuse and even patient as well and I also again I refuse I'm just not taking up that language because again in terms of patient there's that idea that there's a patient doctor relationship and the doctor has the expertise and the patient doesn't have the knowledge the doctor has so there's that power dynamic that I don't agree with yeah and there's that idea of being a bit submissive there as well isn't it yeah that's right so they take on the what the doctor says and do what the doctor says and they might not always be heard their lived experience isn't taken into consideration in their care plans and things like that so I don't really like the term patient and I don't really like the term customer or consumer because it's taking on that managerialism narrative and I just don't like that either yeah sorry to the listeners out there if it sounds like i'm splitting hairs and being pedantic and it's like oh michael in his terms again but i do find that interesting because that also exposes i think some sort of power struggle that might happen within the workplace as well so we're talking about terms here kate but 
Do you have your managers or your supervisors saying, Kate, you need to call them this? <laughs> you have those kind of conversations? Surprisingly, no, I haven't. But the word consumer and the word patient always pop up and everyone else, a lot of other people tend to use them. Yeah. In my current role, I call them clients. In the role before that, which was more closely associated with the mental health field, it was consumer. But I haven't been as challenging as you have been, but it has been the sense of the probation period where one's lizard brain gets bypassed by one's frontal cortex (sighs) and you're actually finding yourself saying the right term. Yeah. Which, in a way, you're kind of finding yourself kind of being immersed in some of the shitty aspects of the system, I suppose. The other unique thing about how you started your role, Kate, is that you've started this and once again, another episode where I have to bring this up and go into the issue again. (laughs) COVID-19. So (laughs) you started this role right in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic. Yes. Has that introduced some unprepared challenges for you, Kate? Well, in terms of where I work... Business is as usual. We still go into the office. We do have like a work from home policy as well, but we still go in. We still see the clients we have to. Obviously, we wear personal protective equipment like masks and gloves, socially distanced. There's lots of hand sanitizer everywhere. And we make sure clients come in, they wear masks and socially distance as well. So, There's protocols in place in terms of working during this time. It has been a bit difficult at the beginning because a lot of the community services weren't seeing clients face-to-face. So if they were linked up with a support worker Mm. from, I don't know, let's say Flourish or something, a lot of them were doing phone contacts. A lot of my clients don't have phones. They don't have the money to buy a phone. So they were quite isolated And that really impacted their mental well-being. Obviously, it declined. So we, the service that I work at, were very important in maintaining a level of mental well-being with those clients because we may have been the only contact that they have. So it's always been face-to-face contact during the course of the pandemic, yeah? Yes. Okay. So that's unique. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And it was limited we tried to you know introduce telehealth but as I said a lot of our clients the particular geographical area I work in very low socioeconomic area a lot of people don't have technology Mm. like computers iPads phones so imagine just being cooped up in your house the whole time and the only interaction you have is with a mental health worker whether you want to or not whether you like them or the service or not and then you go back and you might not have a TV mm. and you don't have a computer to surf the net. You don't have Facebook to talk, to, you know, to friends online or, yeah, it was difficult for a lot of people. But now that things are opening up and services are back in action and a lot of them are doing more face-to-face work, there has, like the clients I've worked with, there's been a increase in their mental well-being and stability. Yeah, just looking like looking back over the last half year or so, see uh, the way that we've had to deliver our service could change week by week. At one point, we were just working from home for full time, and this is a role that 
where community development is a huge aspect of it. So yeah, it functions the best when you're um, when you're out and about and you're meeting people. Mm. So one thing that we definitely came across is that, that there was that digital divide there for reasons that you've, you've identified. No one has a phone. Also, that lack of digital literacy in that. How do you log in? Exactly. What's a password? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've had several clients who don't know how to use a computer. With the role, it's like that face-to-face, on-the-ground stuff and then the bigger picture stuff. And you see this tension between trying to find solutions at for the moment versus, and you're seeing this at the political stage as well, hanging out for stuff to return to the way it once was. Mm. Are you kind of feeling that tension on your end? Because I am on mine because you, you really are trying to find ways of, uh, of responding and, and I feel one of the big issues there is digital literacy yeah. and I feel like for me that when I might be on the verge of cracking it, that's when the rules will change again yeah. and it's like, oh, well, digital literacy, that was a flash in the pan issue. We don't need to worry about that anymore because everything's normal again but I would like to think that that's still going to be a prevailing issue. I hope it doesn't get buried over time if um, once pandemic restrictions lift. I don't know, do you have those ruminations and tensions? Yes, in terms of like just the digital divide or in terms of policy in general, things that could be improved and changed to actually accommodate many people I think what I've done is just a very clumsy thing where I've talked about day-to-day stuff versus bigger picture stuff. Mm. But I do see some similarities in that some of the issues that we've come across, there might be the idea that uh, they're only temporary, so let's just put up with it at the moment. Don't necessarily have to worry about a solution or a fix to that. It will just go away later. And I feel like that's often mirrored at the higher bigger picture level as well. Oh, yeah. Particularly when you hear the the rhetoric of snapback, everything will snap back to the way it was. So digital literacy is one example. The other thing I can think about, and I think you've coloured some of the panels there as well, Kate, is that idea of clients being invisible. That's where I'm coming from, that idea that you feel that tension where you you kind of think, well, do we treat this as, as temporary stuff? Or is this something that's, that's really going to be uh, an issue that, that's going to need to be responded to, whether or whether or not the, the switch gets flicked and there's no more pandemic? Um, and that's, that's hyperbole either way. I don't think it's <laughs> going to be a switch. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely not. These issues need to be addressed. They might go away for some people, maybe people who are more privileged than others it's not going to go away for a lot of other people. So there's definitely scope for policies to be altered and changed. And I mean, it's an interesting time really at the moment, seeing the response from the government about COVID and supports and financial supports and who qualifies for that and things like that. And then, you know, putting up the COVID, what was it called? The COVID... Are you talking about JobKeeper, Job... Yeah, things like that and who gets it, who doesn't get it. Money isn't... You can't just sometimes throw money at people and that's that's not a fix either. Well, it's doubly hazardous in the fact that you throw money and then you put a due date on it. Yeah, exactly. when the due date happens, well, what happens then? Mm. That opens up a new vulnerability, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't it be cool if... (laughs) 
<laughs> it sounds very leading. Wouldn't it be cool if policy change could happen if it was informed by clients or community members? Yes. Well, uh, see, that to me, it's not like some people would say that's a radical idea, but then radical is a term. It's yeah, just I've, the opposite I've had, of what I've had uni markers express that sentiment <laughs> to me. I don't think that is like an outrageous idea. That is just to me a normal way of improving a system, having the people that are experiencing the problem, having input. That's a no-brainer. In my opinion, I just, yeah, that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, great. Let's not have to unpack that. It's as clear as very fine polished glass. Yeah. So the other thing that I want <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> I wish uh, I wish podcast questions went a lot like that. So uh, my other question here, though, is that we've, we've spoken a lot about networking, Kate that a lot of the stuff that one finds out as a practitioner or as a worker tend to find that out through just um, hanging out and finding stuff out accidentally, whether it's through day-to-day experiences or stuff that you pick up from your colleagues, co-workers, Mm -hmm. which lends me to ask you about your other project that you've got there that I think may be a little bit little bit on hiatus thanks to uh, COVID. But um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Kate? Yeah, sure. Because um, that's, that's how I met you, by the way. Yes, it is. And I still remember you standing up and asking, are community workers welcome here? And okay. I was like, yes, you are. No, you were like, fuck that guy, <laughs> seriously. Get out. No, um, yes, that's actually how I met you. It is, you know, in hiatus and a bit on the back burner at the moment, which is unfortunate because we did come together earlier this year just before lockdown happened. W- what's it called? Sydney Social Work Community. Okay. So the Facebook page is there and people are still liking it and we have a Facebook discussion group which is open to community workers, welfare workers, social workers, social work students and academics um, and human rights workers so they can discuss and post things and there's been quite a lot of action on there to be honest. And oh, okay. So things have carried over from the face-to-face stuff and that's all become online, has it? Yeah, in terms of people posting, so SWIC, that's its like acronym and short version. I like my acronyms, so I can start <laughs> calling it SWIC, can I? Yeah, SWIC. Cool. That kind of, the face-to-face stuff. So what we initially did last year is when I was a student in April 2019, I started Sydney Social Work Community because I saw there was a gap in, well, it started with my cohort I was just like we're not really building a little community here we're not connecting there's you know groups here and there the only time we ever really came together as a cohort I think was by the last year we started really getting to know many different people and we didn't know the other cohorts so the third year social workers the second the first years so Initially, it was going to be about connecting the cohorts and connecting my cohort. And then it kind of, I sat down and had a coffee with a friend and I chatted with her and it just literally in one night, it was like, this was March last year. It was actually, let's connect UCID social work and UNSW social work. But then it just blew out of control and it was like just connecting 
social workers and community workers in Sydney. And it just, a month later, we had the launch event. That's interesting. So it sounds like there was a bit of an organic thing that happened there. Yeah. Or is it the case of, oh, this must be an inner city uni event. This must be one of those things. Uh, It cannot go outside those boundaries. (laughs) Well, yeah, initially it was, but then I'm... I like to do, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to go the whole way. Yeah. And it's going to be big. So nah, but it did sound like it was meeting a need there. It, it was. And I wish we still could have face-to-face stuff. So basically it is a support and support group, I suppose, in a sense that people can make friends and so students can connect with social workers and, you know, people can still um, be in touch with academia and research because we have people from academics from universities come and talk and yeah so it's multifaceted in what it's trying to achieve in terms of support networking which I like to call socializing I don't like the idea of networking it's too managerial again (laughs) Um, and being up to date with research in particular areas so for example we had someone talk about islamophobia and her research in that Um, so was that a face-to-face one or was that an online one that was a face-to-face one I think that was the second or third one we did I had a panel last year I think this was the last event I had which was November December last year which was a panel of five social workers at University of Sydney it was like a careers pathway Mm -hmm. discussion they spoke about what they did and then there was 50 people or so, you know, asking them questions. And that was really helpful, I think, for students especially, but anyone who was interested in wanting to study social work or know what we do or transfer from one profession to another. Yeah. What's appealed to me there is that you seem to have brought people in or invited people that have come into the social work, community work fields in different levels and different ways. So there seems to be that cross-pollination. It doesn't feel like there's that idea of... Because I've been to... I'm going to use the term. It's clinical and it's technical networking, networking groups (laughs) where... um, where I forgive you. Thank you, Kate. (laughs) Where you you enter these these forums and groups and it feels like there is that idea you have to conform to something, that you have to meet some standards to be able to establish your own value within those those particular groups and places. But um, I think what you're kind of looking to do there turns it on its head and I I think that's that's powerful in the sense that it it, it allows for people to share their own individual stories and and their own journey, whether it be professional or, or social. Yeah. That's right. And everyone has, you know, knowledge to share, whether you're a student or someone who's been in the field for so long and it's nice to just socialise and meet people and share those stories, like you said. Mm. So what's going to happen next there, Kate? Uh, It sounds promising that you've got a lot of online stuff happening, like a lot of online chatter. Uh, Will there be a return to the face-to-face stuff, do you think, or is it going to be a bit of a mix? Or you've just kind of thought, well, I've got a new job. I think that's that's <laughs> good enough at this point in time to, to try to hold that down. I do want to start face-to-face stuff. I didn't – so in terms of the on, pardon me, the online stuff, it's more not member-based but people who are within – because it's not a member-based organisation. It's 
um, this discussion group online is people who are members in the discussion group are the ones posting stuff. So SWIC isn't really posting stuff on their page. It's more we kind of decided not to do that because it's not really the idea of SWIC was to connect people in a physical space and it's going to happen again. It's just a matter of when. I don't know. I want it to start again, but yeah. Yeah, it's good that you're that you going to return to it. I've, I've got an eye on it. I'd like to see SWIC come back. Oh, thank you. One yeah. supporter. Yay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seeing how you allow community workers, that's good. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kate, I noticed that you've got a copious amount of notes there with oh you. My God. Uh, we've covered a fair amount of ground, but is there anything that we've missed that you would like to cover? I think it was more touching on wellness and what that looks like during COVID. And I think we kind of touched on that when we were talking about structures and how that impacts people. And it's not just about the individual and the idea that, you know, you have to do these daily healthy habits like sleeping well and eating well in reality some people can't do that we never mentioned yoga did we (laughs) oh god (laughs) and yeah well that would fall under physical time michael okay um yeah so i guess i just wanted to say you know during covid times it is a difficult time And in general, well-being isn't about being happy all the time. No one is happy all the time. If you are happy all the time, you probably need to go to a doctor and check that out. Or you found some really good stuff. Yeah, or you found some really great stuff. Um, But we are human beings. We have emotions. We have a myriad of emotions that we want to experience and express and part of self-care especially during COVID is to acknowledge those feelings so hey I'm feeling really sad today sit with that feeling and then move on from that feeling and by moving on I mean call a friend if you're able to or catch up for a socially distanced coffee learn something new like a musical instrument or a language or take up reading go for a walk If there's very troubling things going on for you, there's always the mental health access line. Um, There's services that you can go to, like community health centres. They're different to the community service centres. Talk to someone. There are mental health care plans available through your GP if you have Medicare or an interim Medicare card and gives you 10 free sessions, which they're actually going to up if they haven't already, to... 20 I think I'm not sure yeah so that one's within a calendar year isn't it yes within a calendar year yeah so if you do get a mental health care plan from a GP they last for 12 months so let's say you got one earlier this year in January you never used it you can go and use it it's still valid that could be a future episode of ours Kate just totally um, spent on explaining Medicare (laughs) (laughs) don't get me started (laughs) and the only other thing is a lot of my clients didn't have access to food vouchers or food parcels and these services that you know are normally open and provide basic needs 
Yeah, emergency relief. Yeah, exactly. Mm. They weren't available to people and that disrupts, obviously, their mental health again. A lot of people couldn't go to TAFE courses. There were free TAFE courses and still are for computer literacy and things like that. Anyone can sign up if you're interested in that through New South Wales TAFE. Those are just some thoughts. Yeah, to me it's reassuring to know that there's, there's stuff out there. There's always options. And at the same time, if you're feeling like it's all fucked up, then yeah, it's okay to feel like it's all fucked up. If it's one particular thing that these times have let me know about is that there's no right answers at the moment because we haven't done this before. Exactly. We're sitting in a very uncertain time. Yeah. And this now is the new norm for now. Yeah. Yes. And um, it will become a, another normal likely next week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More restrictions lifted or something. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Kate. It's been nice to have an episode where I can talk shop. It's been good. <laughs> I hope to bring you again sometime. When I, it, it served as a good debrief for me at the least anyway. Oh, thanks. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. It was a pleasure. You're welcome, Kate. All right. Well, so long, everyone. And hopefully everything's still normal enough to, to see you in a week. See ya. <laughs>